in your Bibles this morning, if you would, to Matthew chapter 5. Uh, Matthew chapter 5, back to Jesus' Sermon on the Mount again. If you're new to City Church, we're in a series that we have been calling Stranger Things, Life in the Right Side Up. If you watch the hit Netflix show, you might recognize the set up here. The show imagines an alternate dimension called the Upside Down, in which all of the landmarks from this world are there, except everything in the Upside Down is desolate and shadowy and grim and and distorted. The show, of course, is, is fictitious, but the Bible does teach something kind of similar, that there are two alternate kingdoms that coexist side by side here on earth. One could be called the kingdom of man. The reason it's called that is that in, in this kingdom, every man or woman is his or her own king, or I suppose you could say queen. Listen to some of the words that the Bible uses to describe this kingdom. See if this doesn't sound like the world in which we live. Selfish, dark, hateful, violent, unjust, greedy, dishonest, lost, meaningless, for example. Sound like the world that we live in? The other kingdom is called the kingdom of God. Now, right now, the kingdom of God isn't a physical kingdom, but when Christ returns one day, it will be. For now, the kingdom of God is more, it's more like a, I guess you would describe it as a kingdom within a kingdom. It's made up of people who are disciples of Jesus Christ, who is the king of the kingdom of God. And these are people who are learning how to live right side up in an upside down world from Jesus. That's why I say it's a kingdom within a kingdom. Learning to live right side up in an upside down world. And they're, doing, they're learning that from Jesus. Here's some of the words that the Bible uses to describe life in the kingdom of God. Light, love, sacrifice, good, grace, joy, forgiveness, for example. Well, in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus, is, as we've seen, invites anyone and everyone to learn how to live right side up in an upside down world by becoming one of his disciples. But in spite of the fact that hundreds of thousands of pages have been written on this sermon in in books, and, and tens of thousands of sermons have been preached on this sermon, most people, even many of us in this room, choose to ignore it. And we continue to live upside down. And and we assume that upside down is normal. And we neglect the the personal and the societal danger of living upside down. A few years ago, I came across a picture. It was just fascinating to me. I'm going to show it to you. Can we put that picture up on the screen? Here it is. Now, if you are just listening over the Internet or if you can't see the picture well, it's a picture of a crowd of people who are watching a football game from the stands as a school building burns not 50 feet behind them. No one in the stands looks even mildly alarmed at the flames shooting out of the building and the black smoke that is billowing into the sky. Now, please understand, this is not a painting, it's not a drawing, nor is it an urban legend. It's an actual photo taken on November 20th, 1965, at a football game between Mount Hermon Prep School and Deerfield in Mount Hermon, Massachusetts. Now, if you work for a magazine or a newspaper... um, and you were responsible for captioning this picture, I wonder how you would capture it. I wonder how you would caption it. Excuse me. Maybe something like this. Consumed with the trivial while danger looms. 
Like, I, you know, I like football as much as anyone else does. But listen, when I'm in danger, when there's a fire burning right behind me, football becomes very trivial. Maybe you would caption it, entertained to death. Or maybe oblivious much. Maybe you'd say, maybe you'd caption it, not my problem. Maybe you'd caption it, misplaced priorities. But to me, uh, the caption that would best describe American culture might be, denial isn't just a river in Egypt. Because you see, there's something about us that refuses to believe that our world is upside down and that there's only one king in the universe. And so we would rather live in denial of the personal and the societal dangers of being our own kings and queens, as it were, than to submit ourselves to the authority of Jesus Christ, who is the only king of the universe. And it's because of all of this that Jesus, it's because of all of the personal and societal dangers of living like that, that Jesus says in chapter 4, just before he begins his sermon on the mount, he says, repent for the kingdom of heaven, or... You could also say the kingdom of God is interchangeable. Repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. He's inviting us into the right-side-up kind of life and to leave the upside-down kind of life that we seem determined to live. And as Jesus begins to move into the body of his sermon, he begins to cast a vision for what a right-side-up kind of life looks like, even here in the midst of an upside-down world. Let's start at verse 21 of Matthew chapter 5. Verse 21, Matthew chapter 5, it's the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus has finished his introduction. He's now moving into the body. And he says, you have heard that it was said to the people long ago, you shall not murder, and anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. But I tell you that anyone who is angry with a brother or sister will be subject to judgment. Again, anyone who says to a brother or a sister, Racha, is, is answerable to the court. And anyone who says, you fool, will be in danger of the fire of hell. Therefore, if you're offering your gift at the altar and there, and there remember that your brother or sister has something against you, leave your gift there in front of the altar. First go and be reconciled to them. Then come and offer your gift. Settle matters quickly with your adversary who's taking you to the court. Do it while you're still together on the way. Or your adversary may hand you over to the judge and the judge may hand you over to the officer and you may be thrown into prison. Truly, I tell you, you will not get out until you've paid the last penny. How strange that Jesus is talking about murder and anger and name-calling here. How irrelevant. Am I right? How irrelevant. It's not like a man was just arrested Friday for sending pipe bombs in America to people critical of President Trump or anything. I mean, it's it's not as if a man charged into a Jewish synagogue yesterday screaming anti-Semitic slurs and gunning down 11 Jewish people. How could Jesus be so irrelevant? And, of course, you know I'm being sarcastic by saying that. Actually, the stranger thing is that many people, even some of us, actually think that Jesus is irrelevant and pie in the sky. But notice that the first thing he does when he moves into the body of this sermon is that he plunges right into the heart of what we often refer to so fondly as life in the real world which demonstrates just how upside down we really are to think that this is the best way, or excuse me, the best that the world can be and that this is what God designed for the world. 
Everyday life in America now is, is full of anger and contempt. Mere ideological disagreements are no longer possible in America. Anyone who disagrees with my point of view, because I am my own king, anyone who disagrees with me doesn't just have a different opinion. They're hateful, they're intolerant, they're ignorant, they're oppressive, and they must be silenced. Someone recently called Twitter the angriest place in America. But it's not just Twitter, is it? It's Facebook, it's college campuses, it's city streets, it's bumper stickers, it's newscasts, newspapers, magazines. And yeah, even churches are often full of angry people. I told you some weeks ago, I was once in an elder meeting at a former church where one elder asked another elder if he wanted to step outside and fight. Honestly, I thought that would be far more interesting than what we were discussing at the moment, but that's really not the point. Jesus plunges right into the heart of our upside-down world with words that couldn't be more relevant, more practical, or more urgent for a violently angry and hateful culture like our own. Notice first that he speaks about the evil of anger in verse 21. He says, You've heard that it was said to the people long ago, You shall not murder, and anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. But I tell you that anyone who is angry with a brother or sister will be subject to judgment. You're going to see Jesus use this same construction numerous times throughout the Sermon on the Mount, where he says in verse 21, he says, you've heard it said, and then he concludes with, but I say. Now, the reason that he uses this construction over and over is that the religious leaders in Israel lived in a state of religious denial. And what I mean by that is that they deluded themselves into believing that they were living right side up by distorting and dumbing down God's law. That was the way they convinced themselves that they were living right side up. Because you see, one of the ways, one of the ways that you can rebel against God is by blatantly and obviously rejecting God's moral law. You know, wild living and all. Right? Like you've heard lots of stories of people who, you know, they were like, you know, I, I, I went my own way and I did, uh, you know, all of these things, you know, name them, whatever they are. And then I came to Jesus. Well, obviously that was one, that's one way of rejecting God's moral law and rebelling against him. But the other way that you can rebel against God is by trying to keep, is by trying to keep God's law. Because the only way that you can ever think that you're keeping God's law is by distorting it and dumbing it down. And so, for instance, in this case, you would say, look, God's law says don't murder. So as long as I don't murder anyone, I'm good. I'm keeping his law. And that, you see, is precisely what the religious leaders in Israel had done. They had distorted and dumbed down the law that God had given Israel. But Jesus taught that the spirit behind God's law, real right-side-up living, wasn't just the absence of some behavior, in this case murder, but it was the presence of perfect love. Remember this, folks. Holiness is not just the absence of evil. It's also the presence of love. Jesus is saying, this is the spirit behind God's law. Perfect love of God and perfect love of your neighbor. And so when he says, you have heard it said throughout this sermon, he's referring to the dumbed down version of God's law. And then when he says, but I say, 
He's pointing to this standard of perfect love. And he's saying that anything short of perfect love, in this case, not just murder, but anger, he's saying that's evil too. Which is, by the way, one of the reasons that the religious leaders in Jesus' day hated him. Because he didn't allow them the luxury of staying in their state of denial about the hatred that resided deep down inside of them. He called it out. He highlighted it. And listen, uh, let's be honest about this. You can feel, we can feel for them a little bit, can't we? Because really, who wants to confront the reality of evil inside of us? But you see, Jesus in his mercy, knowing the personal and societal danger of ignoring it, forces us to confront the reality of who we really are down deep inside because it's the only way to move into right-side-up living. You have to see the reality of living as your own king or queen. And ironically, what's so ironic about this is that by forcing them to do it, Jesus was doing so at his own peril, and the religious leaders of Israel, along with the Roman government, actually did indeed murder him out of their anger. Now, the question is, okay, so evil, anger is evil. Why? Why is anger so evil? Well, that leads to Jesus' second point, and I want you to see this. And, and I'm calling it the disintegrative, the disintegrative nature of anger. The disintegrative nature of anger. Okay? Jesus shows us why anger is so evil by walking us in this passage through the progressive stages of anger that lead to personal and societal disintegration. And so to help you understand these progressive stages, I'm going to put them in the context of a simple nuisance from my own life that makes me angry from time to time. And you'll recognize this, those of you who are here, because I've talked about this in other contexts before. Let's say I'm driving to an appointment of some kind and I'm late. I get on the Lloyd and I decide to drive in the far left lane because I know that in the state of Indiana there is a law called the Slowpoke Law, which makes it illegal to drive slowly in the left lane. I'm, I'm late, but when I get in the left lane, I get behind someone who is completely unaware of that law, apparently, and driving really slowly in the left lane, and I can't get over to pass them because there's someone in the lane next to me and a long line of cars behind them. Now, what do you think I feel in this moment? Yes, I feel angry. Now, is my anger, is my anger legitimate? Well, of course it is. The guy in the car, uh, you know, he's violating the law. I, I'm not wrong for feeling angry, right? I'm, I'm not wrong for feeling angry. And I'd be okay if I just sort of felt the anger and then let it pass. But you see, the problem is that what I'm really angry about isn't that I might be late for an appointment, nor is it my deep love and admiration for Indiana Code Title 9-21-5, Section 7. Yes, you can look it up. It's not my deep love for that that makes me righteously angry that this law is being violated. No, what I'm really angry about is that this person has thwarted my will. They thwarted my will. They're keeping me from doing what I want to do. And so what I may well do, I may well move from feeling angry, which isn't wrong, to choosing to be angry, 
which is wrong. In other words, I, I embrace my anger. I receive it. I start to dwell on it. I nurture it. Now, why in the world would anyone choose to be angry? Well, it's because in every one of us, not just me, you too, there is this self-righteous, egotistical king that hates having our will thwarted, and it blows something like this all out of proportion. I am the king of the road, you see. And like an offended king, I think, how dare this subject thwart the king's will? Now, really what's happening down deep inside is that my ego has been wounded, hasn't it? Because if I'm the king, why isn't this person acknowledging that by getting out of my way? His slowness is forcing me to realize that I must not be the king. Or at least he isn't showing me the deference and the respect I deserve. And so I believe I have the right to be angry about this. This is what a wounded ego demands, you see. It's a way of reasserting my kingship and my control. Men, we particularly struggle with this. Because you know what someone else might do with a wounded ego is that they might cry. They might fall apart and cry. But men, we can't do that in our culture, can we? So the most masculine thing that we can do to reassert our control and our kingship is to get angry, to choose to be angry. That's what a wounded ego demands. Well, at this point, I may just whisper some very hateful things about this man to myself. Maybe I, just, maybe I start wishing the city church sticker isn't on my car so that I could lay on the horn or something. But I don't. I just, let's just say I let it pass. But let's say that this repeats itself daily for like a month or so. And each time it happens, I move from feeling angry to choosing to be angry about it. So that now every time I get in the car, I'm angry before I even start driving. Now what's happened is I've moved from feeling angry to choosing to be angry to chronic anger. You might call this bitterness, but I'm I'm officially an angry driver. Because anger can begin to set in, can't it? It can begin to permanently reside in our souls. Ever ever known a person who, like, you just feel, like, you can just pick up the vibe that they're an angry person? That's, That's chronic anger, and it comes out of a deeply wounded ego. And chronic anger, here's the fascinating thing about it, chronic anger can spread It can spread across families and whole cultures. And yeah, I'm talking to you, America. It could spread across across countries. When chronic anger sets in, you're not even really in control of it anymore. You become addicted to the adrenaline rush of anger. I might start looking for someone who drives slowly in the left lane. I might not even be in a hurry, but I see someone driving slowly in the left lane, and I squint my eyes, and I say, make my day. And I purposefully get up behind him and real real close, and I I lay on my horn because I'm addicted to the rush of anger. And you can see that I'm now disintegrating. Like I'm literally coming apart at the seams as a person. This isn't sane, healthy, peaceful behavior. And so I'm, I'm disintegrating. And even though I'm only honking my horn, which 
on the scale of angry responses is still pretty slight. My venomous anger is now seeping into the world around me. Chronic anger. But we're not done. We're not done. I'm now such a chronically angry angry person. I am now so addicted to the adrenaline rush of anger that I need more stimulation to get the same high because that's what addiction does. I need more stimulation to get the same high. So at the next stoplight, I get in the middle lane next to the guy, and let's say I roll down my window and I spit on his car and I call him a terrible name. Look at what Jesus says in verse 22. Again, anyone who says to a brother or sister, Raka, is answerable to the court, and anyone who says, you fool, will be in danger of the fire of hell. The word Raka was an Aramaic word that was used to express contempt. See, this is the next stage down in the disintegrative process of anger. From feeling angry to choosing to be angry, to chronic anger now to contempt. The, the word raka is derived from a word that meant to spit. Think about how superior you must feel to another person to want to spit on them. And to call someone a fool was to say the worst possible thing about another person in Jesus' culture. To spit on a person or to call them a degrading name, your self-righteous anger has reached a point that you consider that person inferior to you, no longer even worth the least measure of respect that you could show them. That's what contempt is. It's essentially dehumanizing another person. And you know how we practice contempt in our culture today? It's like this, when we think to ourselves in our heads or when we say to someone, you are nothing more than a fill in the blank. Contempt sets people up for whatever dehumanizing, emotional, or physical pain that you want to inflict upon them because they're not worth anything anymore. It's okay for you to do anything you want to do to them because they're no longer human. Think about racial slurs. You're nothing more than a fill-in-the-blank racial slur. Is it any wonder that the man who massacred 11 Jewish people in a Pittsburgh synagogue yesterday entered the room first shouting anti-Semitic insults? You see, anger and contempt, when fully realized, always results in physical harm of some kind, when it's fully realized. Think about some of the words that we use in our culture to degrade women. And then consider the physical violence that we see against women in our culture. Think about some of the sexual words that we use to insult and degrade one another. And then think about how that incites violence. It's what contempt does, you see. It reduces someone down to something less than human. And so now I can do whatever I want to you because you're not human anymore. You don't matter. You're inferior to me. And Jesus says that this is such an egregious demonstration of hateful anger that it is worthy of eternal damnation. Well, back to me in my car. Now at this point, I'm sitting in the middle lane. I haven't murdered anyone. Isn't that a wonderful victory? By the religious leader standard that I talked about a moment ago, I have fulfilled God's law. But have I really? Is this what living right side up looks like? 
Am I loving my neighbor, specifically the one in the car next to me? No, of course not. And I hope you agree with me about that. If you don't, please listen very closely to everything else that's going to be said here this morning. I've come in completely unglued as a result of my self-righteousness and my wounded ego. I have literally disintegrated. Not to mention the effect that my venomous anger is having on that guy. He's probably just as angry because he thinks he's king of the road too. And who am I to tell him differently? And so my private anger has now uh, not only spread, but like a computer virus, it replicates itself in other people in destructive, violent words and acts. And now not only am I disintegrating, but so are the people around me. And that spreads more, and so is the society around me. That's the disintegrative nature of anger, and that's why it is so e- evil. Anger, not just, the fe- not, not, not just the feeling of anger, okay? I'm not talking about the feeling of anger. But the kind of anger that I have taken in and chosen is evil because its aim is not love but malice. And even though anger doesn't always end in murder, the roots of the hatefulness of murder are in each and every one of us. This is why Jesus says that anger is evil and it is worthy of judgment. I would like to challenge you this morning. To do the thing that no one wants to do. What religious people everywhere try to avoid at all costs. And that is to take a close look inside. And ask yourself if anger is beginning to set into your life because of your repeated choice to be angry. Or ask yourself if it has already set in. And that you are now an angry person. Perhaps ask some of the people closest to you. And the reason I would challenge you to do that is because as we're going to see now, next, very quickly, transformation is possible. But it begins with recognizing the anger that is inside of you. Jesus now begins to talk about the third thing here that I want to say, and that is the transformation of anger. In other words, what is a formerly upside-down, angry person who is now living right-side-up through discipleship to Jesus look like? And he gives us two pictures, two uh, illustrations of this person. Verse 23, therefore, if you're offering your gift at the altar and there, remember that your brother and sister had something against you. Leave your gift there in front of the altar. First go and be reconciled to them. Then come and offer your gift. Now, that's the first illustration. Here's the second one. Verse 25, settle matters quickly with your adversary who is taking you to court. Do it while you're still together on the way, or your adversary may hand you over to the judge. And the judge may hand you over to the officer, and you may be thrown into prison. Now, because of your self-righteous nature and my self-righteous nature, what we want to do is we want to read these as laws that Jesus is laying down. But don't do that. Read them as illustrations. Because if you see these as laws, you will miss the inner transformation that Jesus is pointing to here. Christian uh, transformation isn't about external behavior modification. It isn't just about not murdering people or even just not being angry. When we talk about being transformed by the gospel of Jesus Christ here in the vision statement on the wall, we're talking about inner transformation of the heart which is where actions emanate from. We've already seen that you could be a mean, hateful, religious person without having murdered anyone. See, no, Christianity always wants to transform you from the inside out into a person 
who acts out of a heart of love. And in the two illustrations that Jesus gives us here, he shows us people who are living right side up. Each of these people are so deeply caring about the well-being of the other person that he or she is willing to sacrifice their interest for the other person. In the first case, he or she would even stop something as important as a spiritual ceremony to go be reconciled to the other person, which, by the way, in Jesus' day was thought to be the highest priority of life. What is your highest priority today? Like in Jesus' day, it was a spiritual ceremony. What's your highest priority? What's the thing that you would never interrupt to go be reconciled to someone else? That's the point that Jesus is making here. It's not about, you know, you can't go to church or you can't take communion or whatever until you reconcile with somebody else. That's not, that would be a law. That's not what Jesus is talking about. He's talking about becoming the kind of person who is so concerned about the welfare of another person, so loving that you would stop whatever the most important thing that you're doing is in order to go and to be reconciled with them. And you're not doing it because of some selfish, uh, needy, a desire to be loved by everyone. You're doing it out of genuine care for the other person's disintegrating, angry soul because they're mad at you. In the second illustration, the person is trying sincerely without bitterness or without hostility to resolve a legal matter with an adversary before it goes to trial. He's sincerely, out of concern for his adversary, trying to come to an agreement because he wants to heal his adversary's heart Instead of letting it go to trial, where the limited nature of imperfect uh, human justice will likely leave both people uh, far short of what they really want. Now again, see, these aren't laws. Jesus isn't saying that love demands that we give in to the demands of an adversary, because sometimes, sometimes love requires us to resist them. Nor is he saying that we can't go to court. You can't go to church or take communion or whatever because, you know, it's not always in your control about whether someone chooses to be mad or not. Laws aren't the point. Jesus wants to show you what a transformed heart looks like, what life in the right side up looks like, where formerly angry people have become the kind of people from the inside who are willing to sacrifice their interests for the sake of others where it seems wise to do so. That's what it looks like to live right side up. It's far more than just not murdering someone. And these are just two illustrations, as I said, from everyday real life that Jesus has used. But there's a thousand other ways that this kind of love could play itself out in your world and in mine. And I know that there are some of you thinking, well, this is completely unrealistic. This is pie in the sky. How could, a, how could a formerly angry, hateful person become so transformed? And I'm going to tell you that it doesn't happen quickly. That's number one. And I'm also going to tell you, number two, that it certainly doesn't happen by trying to deny your anger. That's what some religious people say. Well, just deny your anger. Don't act like you're angry. But it also doesn't happen if you listen to the psychological theory that says that anger has to be vented. That won't work. You won't be transformed that way. Instead, anger has to be processed. One of the things that you've got to realize as we go through this sermon is that the sequential order of this sermon matters. Think back to what came just before this passage. It was Jesus saying that anyone and everyone can be blessed by becoming his disciple. 
Because you remember, he said that he is the blessing. The promise to Abraham way back in the book of Genesis, the promise that, he would, that God would send a Messiah, Jesus is the Messiah. And he's saying anyone and everyone can be blessed by becoming his disciple, the first step of which is repenting of our own authority and bowing at the foot of the cross. Because here's the thing, folks. Only at the cross can self-righteousness and a wounded ego be healed. Because at the cross, I realize that my sin had to be paid for. There goes my self-righteousness. And my wounded ego goes away. Because there at the cross, the king of kings endured the wrath of God for my sin. Nailing down there once and for all my worth as a human being. And so I don't have to reassert my control in order to make myself feel better to heal my wounded ego because Jesus has already healed it perfectly at the cross. And so you see, transformation happens as you bring your wounded ego and your self-righteousness and you surrender it all at the cross of Jesus. That's how we process anger. And that's how Christian transformation happens. That's how disciples of Jesus are slowly but surely transformed into people of love, people who are living right side up in an upside down world. And so let me just close once again, with the question that I asked you earlier, to ask yourself, is anger settling in to your soul? Or have you already become a chronically angry person? The only way that you can be transformed, the only way that you can deal with that anger is by processing it at the cross. That's it. And so I'd like to ask you now to bow your heads and perhaps it's time to bring that anger to the cross of Christ. Where your self-righteousness is surrendered because Jesus paid for your sins there. He had to die for your sins. And your wounded ego can be healed because there Jesus said, you are so worth it to me. You are so valuable that I'm willing to die for you. And there's nothing else in the world, folks, that can ever heal a wounded ego other than that. Not your job, not your job performance, not who loves you, not your money, not anything else. You can be, you have a wounded ego and be great at your job and be very rich. It's only the cross that will heal a wounded ego. And so in this moment, don't deny your anger. But let's repent of the need that we feel like we have to vent our anger all the time. Let's process it at the cross so that Jesus could transform us into the kind of loving people who more than just not murdering someone, loves them deeply, so deeply that we're concerned about, we're concerned about the state of their soul. Jesus, I confess that I often just let 
anger control me and I, I choose it and I, I let it set in to my own soul. And Lord, I recognize that that's as evil as evil is murder because the roots of murder are still in me and so Lord I bring my own anger to you and I just want to lay it down at the cross and I pray that you would help me to continue to lay it down and to surrender my self-righteousness and my wounded ego and I pray that you would continue over time to, to transform me into the kind of person who is so loving that never feel this need to assert my wounded ego and to regain control of myself. I pray that for our congregation. I know that there are people in this room today that would say that they're on their way to becoming chronically angry. Some that would say, I am chronically angry. Some that may not know that they're chronically angry, but the people who live with them do. Lord, we pray that you would transform all of us here into the kind of people that are so deeply loving that we would never want to vent our anger on other people and in the process dehumanize them because we recognize their value to you as human beings. We bring this now to you at the cross. It's in your name that we pray.